Welcome to the Legendary Upside Podcast. My name is Pat Corain. You can find all of my work at legendaryupside.com. This episode is a free preview of the narrated version of the walkthrough, my game-by-game preview column that comes out every week. Um, getting this one out a little bit later just because time was a, uh, a constraint this week with no buys. Um, the full narrated version of this, which is available to Legendary Upside Premium uh, subscribers, came out late Thursday night. So um, apologies for getting this out a little bit later, the free preview, but if you want to check out the rest of the narration or the full write-up on the site, go ahead and head over to Legendary Upside. You can sign up for just $10 a month there, $99 for the year. I've got all sorts of off-season content rookie content, best ball content, going year-round with this. But let's go ahead and get to the Week 8 walkthrough. The title is the Week 8 walkthrough, Nico Collins Makes a Splash. Welcome to the Week 8 walkthrough. In this article, I'll outline critical fantasy football context for this eighth glorious week of football. The stats below are from PFF, NFL FastR, RBSDM.com, Rotoviz, Fantasy Labs, ESPN, NFL Next Gen, and Fantasy Life. ESPN's receiver tracking metrics. This is the intro. It's week eight. The injury bug is biting, and the NFL just smacked us with a zero-by-week scheduling travesty. But the good folks at ESPN have the pick-me-up we desperately need. The receiver tracking metrics are live. And then I've got their link to the ESPN receiver tracking metrics, which I would recommend checking out. A very um, fun to to look at an easy to use interface over there. And you can look at these um, player tracking based receiver metrics that I'll talk about here in a second, a little bit more. You can look, I think going back to 2017. So really cool. All this is available for free. Used to be on 538, I believe, and uh, now over at ESPN. So uh, definitely check that out, link in the article, or just if you like literally Google Open score, ESPN open score, I'm sure it'll pop up. Like their trenches win rate metrics, their receiver metrics are based on NFL next gen player tracking data. You can read more about them here. These metrics include, and then I link to the to the article there. These metrics include open score, catch score, yak score, and an overall receiver rating built from the component metrics. Of these, open score is my favorite. We're deep in the weeds on player production. If a player is an outlier in per target efficiency, one way or the other, we're likely to already have taken notice. But open score can help us predict who will see targets in the future, as well as understand which highly targeted wide receivers are supporting that volume with high-end route running ability. Brennan Ayuk's ridiculous 3.25 yards per route run isn't going to hold, but it looks more real once you realize that he's led the NFL in open score this year. To a degree, I view, I view open score as descriptive. If you think a wide receiver is an effective contested catch deep threat, an occasional lack of separation isn't a big deal. Mike Williams has never scored higher than 56 in the 0 to 100 scale. He's still a very good wide receiver. But there's a limit. Marcus Valdez-Scantling was an effective deep threat in 2021 with an open score of 48. But with an open score of 26 last year, MVS was a cardio specialist as he has been this year. Open score can also highlight early career breakouts. I'm especially encouraged by George Pickens' jump in open score this year. In combination with improved efficiency and production, his breakout campaign looks legitimate. Open score is also very helpful in evaluating tight ends. I was very bullish on Mark Andrews this offseason, in part because he led all tight ends in open score last year. 
and I didn't dare predict an age decline for Travis Kelsey, who finished tight end two. Kelsey ranks tight end one this year. I sat up in my seat when I saw Dalton Kincaid ranked tight end three through seven weeks. Shout out to Jake Ferguson, who ranks tight end six, one spot ahead of Dalton Schultz. Ferguson's breakout is coming. At running back, I prefer to rely on the total receiving score. So I've added that metric to my running back player charts. The ability to get open is definitely part of the puzzle at running back, but running back targets are earned far less than their downfield counterparts. This metric was one of the reasons Jalen Warren is my highest drafted running back this year, edging out Brees Hall. Warren finished running back three in the overall score last year behind Christian McCaffrey and Austin Eckler. We'll get to Warren's rank this year later in the article. It's high. A big thanks to ESPN for making this data publicly available and for thoughtfully developing it. Let's get to it. The first game is Texans at Panthers. This kicks off the 1 p.m. window. Texans implied team total 23.25. C.J. Stroud was extremely impressive in weeks 3 through 4, but he fell off a bit in week 5 through 6. Stroud was still impressive, but he was flashing genuinely elite play for a second there. And then I've got the percentiles by week showing uh, Stroud and success rate, EPA per play, and completion percentage over expected. He kind of shot up just like a straight-up trajectory. Um, and then in weeks three and four, he was elite. Then he fell back down to kind of middling play in week five, and he was middling in EPA in week six as well, but his success rate declined a little bit to the 37th percentile. So not all that impressive over the last two weeks in success rate. Pretty solid over the last two weeks for a rookie, uh, similar to how he was in week two in week five and six, but still a big drop off from those two really strong weeks in weeks three and four. Still, Stroud is having an awesome season for a rookie quarterback. He ranks quarterback nine in EPA per game and quarterback 17 in success rate and is performing like a capable veteran quarterback. Then I've got the EPA per game chart here. This shows um, Stroud right next to Kirk Cousins, Dak Prescott. Uh, He's right behind Justin Herbert. He's a little bit above Russell Wilson. So, you know, he's not like looking like an elite quarterback right now, but he's looking really good for a rookie. But the Texans aren't putting too much on his shoulders. Along with the Falcons, Colts, and Browns, the Texans are one of the NFL's truly run-heavy teams this season. Then I've got a graph here showing pass rate over expected overall and on first and 10. So this gives you a sense of which teams are being conservative. Um... Again, overall, but also on first and 10, I think can help you understand like how aggressive teams really want to be. Um, sometimes you'll see teams like that are dictating the run when they are often up, still being aggressive on first and 10, which I think is a signal. Okay, this team probably like would be down to pass if things got you know competitive, but they're, but they're often up a lot. The Texans are conservative in both measures. So they have a below average or um, below expectations overall and on first and 10, like the Browns, Colts, and Falcons. Uh, Also, you'd say the Bears, Titans, and Cardinals. Those are kind of the the teams that most jump out as being truly conservative. You can bet that the Texans were happy to see a matchup with Carolina leading the way out of their bye. The Panthers have been an absolute joke against the run. Then I have the matchup here, the total matchup, including both passing and running. Texans rushing offense doesn't look great, but the Panthers are dead last in EPA allowed per rush, dead last in rushing success rate, dead last in PFF's run grades. They're 31st in run stop win rate. So they are just real, real bad against the run. 
And they're not great against the pass either. They let up a lot of explosive plays. They don't have great coverage per PFF. Their pass rush is okay. The Texans look stronger as a passing offense than as a rushing offense. But the Panthers' banged-up defense is allowing explosive pass plays at the league's second-highest rate as well. The Texans will be looking to attack deep against them, even if they implement a run-heavy attack overall. Stroud has seen a healthy 24% of his attempts, quarterback 18, on play action, and he is attacking deep on those throws with an 11.8 ADOT, which is quarterback 6 on those play action throws. This is nice to see since play action can unlock big plays. Play action passing makes up 20% of the NFL's total pass attempts and 25% of the league's splash zone pass attempts. And the splash zone I link to in the... uh, the text here, but if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about there, I wrote about this last week. Uh, I'm calling the splash zone the middle of the field and 10 plus yards downfield um, from you know the line of scrimmage. So the quarterback's throwing like a 10 plus yard air yard throw to the middle of the field, calling that the splash zone just to kind of stop having to write downfield middle all the time <laughs> um, and just make this a little easier to talk about. But the reason that we're talking about that, you know, is Hayden Winks has, has conducted research showing that um, those targets are quite a bit more valuable in uh, PPR scoring and probably just overall, right? Like PPR scoring, um, sure, but because they're leading to yards and touchdowns. So if they're creating splash plays, those targets, we want wide receivers who get targeted there. As you might expect from a tactic that pulls linebackers up, Play action is opening up the downfield middle of the field. But honestly, the Texans don't even need the play action boost to attack the splash zone. That's already their thing. They're attacking the deep middle of the field more than any other team this season, and it's not even close. The Texans are targeting the splash zone at nearly a 16% rate. The NFL average hovers just below 8%. Then I've got a chart here that... Billy Jones on Twitter made uh, at NFL underscore Billy underscore Jones. And uh, it looks at um, exactly what I just described, the rate at which these attempts, uh, the rate at which these offenses are, are attempting splash zone throws. The Texans on this chart clearly stand out. They're way ahead of the rest of the pack. Uh, then the Rams are kind of in a second zone here um, that is... Also, like way ahead of the rest of the pack, but also still has a pretty decent gap between the Texans and the Rams. And then the Falcons, the 49ers, the Commanders, the Ravens, the Packers, the Raiders, the Dolphins, the Steelers, the Patriots, the Vikings, the Panthers, and the Bills are all kind of like above average teams in that order. Of course, it shouldn't be a surprise that the Texans are attacking downfield and over the middle of the field. Hayden Winks has shown that these targets lead to fantasy scoring at a higher rate, and fantasy scoring is driven by yards and touchdowns, which NFL teams also tend to like, especially NFL teams in the Shanahan tree. I first started writing about this idea when looking at Mike McDaniel's offensive design last season, and of the top 10 teams in splash zone attempt share, five are run by coaches who worked under Kyle Shanahan or by Shanahan himself. This is scheme at work. But scheme isn't the only element at play. You also need a quarterback capable of throwing into tight windows over the middle of the field. This is a fun clip in which Benjamin Solak explains how Stroud manipulates a linebacker with his eyes to open up a window for Nico Collins in the splash zone. 
Then I've got a clip here from Benjamin Solak on Twitter. He's like literally giddy uh, explaining this throw, which is uh, fairly amusing to watch. Pretty short clip. And yeah, I mean, it's pretty straightforward too. Like Stroud definitely does seem to kind of keep the linebacker uh, from closing down this window over the middle of the field. And Stroud, throw his body sort of position where he's going to, like you think, throw kind of more to down the sideline. And he kind of gets it right down the middle of the field, really tight window throw to Nico Collins. So Stroud being able to do that kind of thing is also important. And it looks like we have that capability at the quarterback position here. The Texans are unlikely to have a ton of raw passing volume, but they should still post a high rate of splash zone attempts given their aggressiveness in attacking that part of the field and the Panthers' propensity for allowing 15-plus yard passes. And if looking to play this angle, Nico Collins is your best bet. Collins is seeing splash zone targets at an elite rate, to the point that he looks like the NFL's preeminent splash zone specialist. Then I've got another chart here from Billy Jones, and... This chart shows on the y-axis splash zone targets per game and then on the x-axis other targets per game. So ideally, you would be in the top right of the chart, which is where Puka Nakua is. He's seeing a bunch of splash zone targets, but he's also seeing a lot of targets overall. Um, Tyreek Hill, Justin Jefferson, Stephon Diggs, Devontae Adams, Adam Thielen, those are the wide receivers firmly in this part of the chart. But Nico Collins is in an interesting area where he's not seeing that many targets overall, uh, but he's seeing a lot of targets, second most to Puka Nakua, in the splash zone. But just so much less target volume overall compared to Nakua. He's like almost like a specialist in this part of the field. Brennan Ayuk and George Pickens are the two other wide receivers who fall in this part of the chart. Shout out to Billy Jones for making these sweet splash zone visuals. You can check out the rest of them here. And then I link to a Twitter thread where Billy shares a number of these charts, including uh, several charts I don't end up including in this week's article. When comparing Nico Collins to Tank Dell, he doesn't necessarily look like the superior player. He actually has a lower first read target rate and a far lower open score. Dell has been elite at getting open, while Collins has only been above average. Then I've got a comparison between Nico Collins, Tank Dell, and Robert Woods. And you can see that Collins and Dell look like really good receivers. Woods, very middling to below average. And I've highlighted yards per route run here where Collins is at 3.01. Dell is at 2.36. So in that metric, Collins far superior. He's also seeing a lot more splash zone targets um, as I'll get to. But yeah, Dell's getting open at, at a much, uh, much more effectively. He's got a 98th percentile open score. Collins in the 58th percentile. And they're both getting targeted at, at similar rates, uh, 23% targets per outrun for Collins and 20% for Dell. So overall, I think Collins has a slightly stronger profile, but if we were just like, who's better between the two? That's kind of more of a discussion, and they kind of do different things well, probably. But when looking at splash zone targets, it's pretty clear that Collins is the primary weapon for this part of the Texans' offense. And that's the way to attack this passing matchup. Collins is a locked-in wide receiver, too. Dell also looks like a strong play, profiling as a high-end flex option. He might not run as many splash zone routes, but I'm never going to look down on a wide receiver with elite route running skills. And things could be very concentrated to Collins and Dell this week, with Robert Woods expected to miss the game with a foot injury. 
This opens up playing time for Noah Brown, who returned to a significant role in Week 6 with Dell out of the lineup. Then I've got Noah Brown's game log from the Fantasy Life tools, and his Week 6 route participation was at 73%, very similar to what he saw in Week 1 at 76%, but you know Dell was out, so there were, there were snaps for him to eat up. But Brown has played very poorly this season, and his presence is likely to boost targets slightly for the other wide receivers. Find a way to get Collins and Dell into lineups. Then I've got Noah Brown's percentiles and stats here. And funnily enough, he has not been targeted once in the splash zone. So he's not really part of this at all. He's got a low 3.8 ADOT, 0.90 yards per route run, 14% targets per route run. Even compared to Robert Woods, who hasn't been great, but Robert Woods has a 16% targets per route run and gets a little more downfield volume. So... Noah Brown doesn't really have any like major target volume. The fact that he's out there probably running empty routes actually helps the other guys. Dalton Schultz also looks like a solid start. Schultz saw his playing time dip in week four, but he was back up to 70% route participation in week six. Then I've got his game log. Route participation started out really hot at 91%, then 71%, 68%, dips to 42%, back to 69% in week five, and 70% last week. Or not last week, the last game. And Schultz has gotten in on the splash zone fun with one of the highest splash zone target rates among tight ends. He profiles as a low-end tight end one. Then I've got Schultz's chart, and yeah, highlighting the 87th percentile rate of splash zone targets. Uh, he's got a 20% targets per outrun, which is pretty solid. Uh, definitely actually better than solid for tight end. That's pretty good. 1.28 yards per route run is not great, but he is getting open decently well, 79th percentile open score. The Texans' passing game weapons are bets on big plays from a productive offense. But in the backfield, we can also count on volume. The Panthers have been truly horrific against the run. They are essentially two tiers below the next worst run defense. Then I've got the EPA chart. This is from rbsdm.com showing dropback EPA uh, per play allowed on the x-axis and rush EPA per play allowed on the y Panthers are kind of in the middle of the chart, meaning they're they're whatever against the pass, but they are so bad against the run. They're kind of extending this chart downwards. The NFL average is like kind of near the top the top of the chart because the Panthers are so bad. They're actually kind of skewing things. The Raiders um, are like they're sort of allowing like 0.05 EPA per rush, and the uh, Panthers are about three times worse than the Raiders, who are like the next worst team. So this is it's kind of crazy how bad they are. Volume is welcome news for a backfield that looks to be undergoing a shakeup. In week six, Devin Singletary handled 52% of snaps and 40% of carries, with Damian Pierce at 35% of snaps and 43% of carries. It was Singletary's first time leading the backfield in snaps. And I've got the two game logs here for each player. And yeah, it, it's interesting because Pierce did slightly out-carry him in week six, but Singletary started the season as kind of an afterthought. He worked into like a a snap range of between 29% and 39%. Big jump in playing time to get all the way up to 52% and a big decrease in playing time. And you look at Pierce's chart, uh, he peaked at 59% of snaps in week four, 67% carry share in week four. He was in an 87% carry share in week five and kept that 59% snap share. So that was that was truly his peak week and then drops to 
snap share, 43% carry share in week six. Singletary hasn't been very good this season, but he's been decently consistent. His 40% success rate is significantly better than Pierce's 35% rate. Ultimately, the Texans could feel that Singletary's consistency is more important than Pierce's theoretical explosiveness. That edge is theoretical because it feels like Pierce has to be more explosive than Singletary, but he really hasn't been this season. Then I've got a comparison of their two, uh, their stats and percentiles, and the only thing that jumps out as positive on Pierce's chart is his 61% carry share. So he's getting a lot of opportunity. That's nice. But he hasn't been very efficient. Uh, he's actually got a decent 1.11 yards per route run. That ranks running back 21, so that's not bad. But otherwise, the highest he ranks is running back 32. Um, Devin Singletary ranks running back 20 with a 40% success rate. So not like off the charts consistent, but he is offering something as a rusher that the Texans can count on. With the rushing workload likely to be split again, both backs look like touchdown-based fill-ins this week. Then I've got the Panthers' implied team total of 20.25. The Panthers are having a very different experience with the number one pick in the draft than the Texans are with the number two pick. Young has been one of the least efficient quarterbacks in the NFL this season, ranking quarterback 32 in success rate ahead of only Zach Wilson, Daniel Jones, and P.J. Walker in EPA per game. Then I have the EPA per game chart... And yeah, Young's kind of down in this this zone you don't want to be in. He's near um, Daniel Jones. He's near Josh Dobbs. He's been a lot more consistent than Kenny Pickett, Zach Wilson, or P.J. Walker, but similar EPA per game. And the last time we saw Young, he turned in a very inefficient performance against the Dolphins. Then I've got Bryce Young's percentiles by week, and yeah, he was at 13th percentile in EPA per play in week six, 10th percentile in success rate. You know, he's like kind of been able to support a receiving weapon and he's had some garbage time production. So I think we've been a little less hard on Young in recent weeks, but he was still very poor before heading into the bye. Young is now going against a Texans defense that doesn't rate very well in EPA allowed per dropback or in success rate, but maybe stronger than those metrics suggest. Houston's pass rush looks especially troublesome. They rank ninth in quick pressure rate and third in pass rush win rate and should be able to keep Young off balance behind a mediocre offensive line. Then I've got the, the matchup chart, and the Texans are the only thing that kind of jump out as, as positive, and they actually are fourth in PFF's coverage grades. They're third in pass block, win, pass rush win rate. They're ninth in quick pressure rate. Uh, they blitz effectively. They don't blitz that often, but they blitz effectively. So uh, the Texans like haven't really done that well when you look at the results, but some of the metrics are kind of hinting maybe they're better than it seems. Pressure is particularly concerning for Young. In the Eagles-Commanders game preview, up next, I introduce a new stat, one that Young rates very poorly in. For now, it suffices to say that every time I watch Young casually drop back, I'm like, does this dude think he's playing flag football? To my eye, there's very little urgency to Young's game. Hopefully, he sped up his internal clock during the bye week. But fortunately for those looking to play fantasy players in this game, the Panthers are willing to pass from behind. As long as the Texans can push the Panthers, we should get passing volume on the Carolina side. Then I've got the expected pass rate chart that I'll refer to throughout this article. Um, And I've referred to this many times in previous weeks. This article has four quadrants, teams that are dictating the run, 
they're running in good game scripts, positive neutral game script a lot of the time. Teams that are dictating the pass, this is the Chiefs. They're often leading, but they still pass a ton. You've got teams that are refusing to pass, the Falcons. They're negative game script a lot, but they still run the ball. Then you've got teams, and the Panthers are kind of one of the main teams this year that is in negative game script a lot, but still um, passes a lot. So they're they're not fighting against the game script. They're kind of our garbage time heroes. Um, Vikings, Commanders, Giants, other notable teams in this group. Jets, Broncos, Raiders, uh, also a little less into it, but they're they're doing that too. But even with volume, I just don't feel comfortable betting on a wide receiver with this profile. Then I've got Adam Thielen's profile. Um, this is a very, very bad profile, actually. 1.08 yards per route run. That's that's bad. 53 open score. So we got the open score data. That's that's pretty bad. So you know, Adam Thielen looking pretty bad. As you can see, the 30-year-old Thielen has seen a major drop-off in his per-route efficiency and just isn't getting open all that well anymore. Easy to see why I hard-faded in this year. Wait. That's Thielen's 2022 profile. One second. Let me pull up his 2023 profile. Shouldn't be too much different. No! God! No! 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 Thielen's actual profile is pretty good. Uh, He's got an open score of 73, which is really good. 79th percentiles yards per hour on his 2.05. It's borderline elite. He looks pretty awesome in pretty much every metric. Thielen is a locked-in wide receiver, too. In the backfield, one of my bigger fades is actually working out. Frank Reich told the reporters that his running game will operate, quote, largely by committee. I found the exact answer in the press conference, and Reich's comments didn't strike me as mega bearish for Miles Sanders. Reich actually mentioned that they love Sanders, and it sounded partially like he was hedging on Sanders' health. But there's also an element where Hubbard has played well when given opportunity, and the coaches probably realized that during their self-scouting process with a week off. Then I link to the video where you can actually just watch. Um, it should start right at that point. If you if you go to the article, watch Reich's comments directly. Hubbard hasn't been spectacular this season, but he's been better than Sanders. Then I've got Hubbard's profile and Sanders' profile back to back. And Hubbard does look definitely more interesting than Sanders has looked. He's a, He's been decently efficient um, or even pretty strong. He's like a 44% success rate, which is really good. Uh, he hasn't been super uh, good in breakaway yards per game. He's only running back 31 there. He's only running back 16 in rush yards over expected per game, but you know, still pretty decent. And then Sanders is running back 49 in success rate, running back 43 in rush yards over expected per game. Uh, just not really adding anything as a rusher. Neither guy really pops as a receiver. As I wrote in week three, this really shouldn't come as a surprise. Then I quote from that article, Unfortunately, the Panthers are starting the less talented player. If this seems outrageous, consider that Hubbard has a 2,000-yard, 20-plus touchdown season on his college resume. In that glorious 2019 season, Hubbard rushed for more yards after contact than Sanders rushed for overall in his lone season as the Penn State starter. And in 2022, despite running behind a worse line, Hubbard matched Sanders' rush yards are expected per attempt and posted an impressive 1.55 yards per route run. Sanders, 0.28 yards per route run, ranked running back 71, dead last. With Sanders installed as the lead back this week, he profiles as a touchdown-dependent RB2. Meanwhile, Hubbard should remain on benches, but he's a priority stash. That's the end of the quote from, I believe, week three. Against a below-average Texans run defense, Sanders and Hubbard both look like touchdown-dependent running back two options. 
if given the choice on my fantasy roster, I'd start the more talented player. Moving to the next game, which is the Eagles at Commanders. Eagles implied team total, 25. Jalen Hurts dealt with a knee injury against the Dolphins, which may have affected his willingness to throw deep in the second half. Then I link to a note by Nick Bodiford, who provides some context on that. But Hurts still turned in a strong game overall. Even better, he's not listed on the injury report this week. Then I've got Hurts uh, percentiles by week. You can see he dipped in week six, but did bounce back in week seven. You know, So even though he, he may have been a little bit banged up, still a good game. While Hertz isn't having a truly elite real-life season, his ability to combine high-end efficiency with general mobility and an unstoppable short-yardage rushing role makes him a true fantasy star. Then I've got the EPA per game chart. He's showing up as like a, like a little bit better than Jared Goff, Justin Herbert, uh, much more efficient than Trevor Lawrence, but similar consistency. But he's a ways away from the top quarterbacks, Brock Purdy, Josh Allen, Tua, much less efficient than Patrick Mahomes, who's been climbing. Uh, he's looking ready to to join the elites there in success rate and EPA per play soon. Uh, honestly, Hertz has kind of been like a less consistent version of Lamar Jackson in these numbers. Would probably be the the cleanest way to explain it. Hertz now gets a Commanders defense that he was highly efficient against in Week Four. He threw for 319 yards and two touchdowns while rushing for 34 yards in the Eagles' 34 to 31 overtime win. It makes sense that Hertz had success against Washington. The Commanders have been quite poor against the pass. Then I've got the passing matchup. The Commanders 27th in EPL out per dropback, 26th in explosive pass rate. They are 17th in coverage grades. They're 22nd in pass rush win rate. So they're just not that great against the pass overall. The Commanders have struggled to prevent 15-plus yard passes. This is a scary weakness against the Eagles, given that the Eagles' line should have no trouble holding up against a mediocre Washington pass rush. With a 2% pass rate of expected, the Eagles have been slightly pass-first this season. To be clear, they've been pass-first relative to a very low expected pass rate. The Eagles have just a 56% expected pass rate this season, only the 49ers rank lower. But the Eagles have an 11% pass rate of expected on first down, signaling a level of aggressiveness that could lead to more passing volume in the right environment. In this matchup, it's likely a signal that the Eagles will attack through the air at a decent rate for as long as this game stays competitive. Then I've got the pass rate over expected chart. The top three teams, the pass heaviest teams very clearly are the Chiefs, the Bengals, and the Commanders. But then there's like another group of teams Six teams just behind them, the Eagles, the Bills, the Seahawks, the Chargers, the Vikings, and the Jaguars kind of form Tier 2. And of those, the Eagles, well, really, uh, of everyone, the Eagles are the most aggressive on 1st and 10. At this point, passing volume isn't a major concern for A.J. Brown. He's dominating targets and air yards, and he's earned that right. Brown ranks 94th percentile in open score and is delivering on his targets, leading ESPN's overall wide receiver metric. Brown also ranks wide receiver one in receiver rating when looking at the last two years combined. This is what an elite wide receiver at the peak of his powers looks like. Then I have a comparison between A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith, uh, and Brown is like dominant in a number of these metrics, 48% air yard share, 0.82 Whopper, which is the highest in the league, 98th percentile in expected yards per route run, so he's seeing really valuable per route 
target volume, and then he's delivering an elite 3.10 yards per route run. So even with an awesome uh, target profile, still delivering efficiency on top of that, 82 open score, 96 overall receiver rating. This also sets up as a good matchup for Devontae Smith, but we can't ignore the fact that Smith is firmly behind Brown. Even last season, Smith was just wide receiver 44 in open score. His slight drop-off in the metric this year is disappointing, but his route running is generally in line with what was expected. But while we're zoomed out, I should note that Smith still ranks wide receiver 20 in ESPN's receiver ratings over the last two seasons. He's ahead of Devontae Adams, Cooper Cup, T. Higgins, D.K. Metcalf, Chris Olave, and Amon Ross St. Brown. But Smith's play this season has definitely been disappointing. With just 1.37 yards per route run, he's playing inefficiently for a player of his caliber. There's not a ton in his profile this year to suggest that a rebound is imminent. But zooming out, we can feel confident that he is a good player in a good matchup on a good offense. Stick with him. After I noted Dallas Goddard's lack of screen game involvement in Week 5, the Eagles promptly fixed the issue. Goddard has seen seven screen targets over the last two weeks, surpassing even his notable 2022 rate. He's also been more involved in general, seeing his yards per route run jump from 0.63 to a much healthier 1.32. But Goddard's resurgence has come against two strong pass rushes, where his low ADOT and screen viability have come in handy. This matchup sets up less favorably, with big plays looking easier to hit downfield. Goddard's 17% targets per route run remains fairly unimpressive, as is his 1.16 yards per route run on non-screen routes. He's in play as a bet on the offense, but Smith still looks like the clear secondary option. Then I've got Dallas Goddard's profile. I added, I didn't mention this in the intro or anything, um, but I did add non-screen yards per route run to the chart this week for wide receivers and tight ends, just kind of highlighting some of these types of small discrepancies where the screen game is making a big impact. Most of the time, it's like not that important or even interesting to look at. But occasionally, as, is, as it is in this case, kind of interesting, 1.32 yards per route run on all routes drops to 1.16 on non-screen routes. So this is a guy who is involved in the screen game and arguably kind of dependent on the screen game, at least to kind of jump out to those of us who are most interested in fantasy. It's fun to imagine the Eagles being aggressive this week, but unless Sam Howell can get back on track, they may not have to be. If the Eagles are in control of this game, they shouldn't have any trouble pounding the rock. Then I've got the rushing matchup, and the Eagles look like they definitely have a mismatch here overall. The run block and run stop win rates look like the biggest mismatch, and that's using player tracking data, and I think not a great sign for the commanders that... um, you know, we have a, a pretty robust sample of data there and an objective sample of data. And the Eagles are, are blocking much, much better than the commanders are uh, stopping the run. DeAndre Swift has settled into a clear lead back role. He doesn't have total control of the backfield, but he's a safe bet for a healthy workload this week. Then I've got the season long stats from Fantasy Life, and he's got 59% of snaps. For the season, that's 59% uh, and 43% of the rushing attempts. So, you know, he's not like, you could say he's almost like a 1A back in a typical offense, but there's really no 1B. The 1B would be like Kenny Gainwell plus the work that Jalen Hurts steals. 
And Swift has been solidly efficient this season, combining breakaway ability with consistency. Per NFL Next Gen, he looks to be leaving some yards on the field, but he's clearly the top runner in the backfield. Swift profiles as a low-end RB1. Then I've got DeAndre Swift and Kenny Gainwell's charts back-to-back. Swift is kind of interesting because he is doing well in success rate, which has really not been his MO for his entire career. But he's behind this great offensive line, and I think that's helping. And his explosiveness is not so great in the NFL Next Gen metrics, but he is running back 12 in breakaway yards per game. So generally, Swift is bringing something to the table. Consistency plus breakaway runs. Kenneth Gamewell really isn't. 37% success rate is the thing he does best, but that's much worse than what Swift is offering. And he's way worse in yards per route run, so the receiving element isn't really there. And he's not explosive at all. Moving to the commander's side, they have an applied team total of 18.5. After hanging with the Eagles in week four, I thought Sam Howell had a firm grip on the commander's starting job for the foreseeable future. But his play has fallen off since, especially against the Giants last week, his worst showing since melting down against the Bills. Then I have Sam Howell's percentiles by week. Against the Bills in week three, he was in the second percentile in EPA per play, 13th percentile success rate, but he was, you know, so he's better last week, but still really bad, 14th percentile uh, EPA per play, 16th percentile success rate. He was also very inaccurate last week, 32nd percentile CPOE. Accuracy really hasn't been Howell's problem. I'll get to what I think his problem has been very soon. While Howell isn't at risk of getting benched this week, he now looks like the type of quarterback who we could see on the bench before the end of the season. Howell ranks quarterback 25 in EPA per game and quarterback 34 in success rate. Then I've got the EPA per game chart. He's next to Justin Fields. He's been more efficient but less consistent than Derek Carr. He's been less efficient but more consistent than Ryan Tannehill. He's sort of like a worse version of Gardner Minshew right now, um, which I think in some ways is sort of an accurate comp. Uh, sorry, sorry to the Howell heads, but that's what the numbers are saying, okay? One of Howell's biggest issues is that he's slow to come off his first read. PFF has charted Howell with a sack on 15% of single read dropbacks. These are plays where he only appeared to make one downfield read and then was sacked. His week six matchup against the Falcons provides a quintessential example. Then I link to a YouTube video of the play, which the NFL won't let me embed. Um, so just I, I note to skip to the 10, 16 minute mark, which it should actually start at. But um, yeah, if you want to watch it, check out the article. Howell keeps his eyes downfield the whole way, waiting, waiting. But then the pass rushes on him. He tries to spin out of a sack, but it's too late. He ducks into the collapsing pocket before being brought down. Howell's willingness to let plays develop can lead to exciting throws. Check out this near-miss deep shot to Deami Brown, charted as a first-read throw. Howell hangs in the pocket and delivers an on-time deep throw, despite knowing he's about to take a big hit. Then I embed a video um, of this clip from uh, the QB school, which you can check out. Uh, he kind of breaks down the, the throw in detail, really emphasizing that he does take a real shot. Um, to deliver this throw, which is, you know, a, a tough kind of hanging in there playmaker thing to do. But Howell's internal clock for when he needs to bail on the primary play design 
seems several ticks slow. Here's another example where Hal makes only one read before realizing it's not going to happen, but too late to avoid a sack. Then I've got another clip here, and uh, also from quarterback school. J.T. O'Sullivan notes that he thinks Hal is holding the ball too long here, hoping to make something happen. As an aside, Ben Gretsch has noted that first read is probably not the best description for what is being charted under that definition. There's certainly merit to that. While watching some of these first read plays, I sometimes saw Hal take a quick look at a second receiver before being sacked. It got to the point that anytime Howell moved his head, I turned into Rick Dalton. Then I've got the Leo pointing at the TV meme from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But the issue isn't really about whether Howell only looked at the deep post or whether he also glanced at the intermediate crosser before getting sacked. The issue is that he spends too long waiting for the called play to develop. Instead of bailing to a plan B, whether that be another downfield read, a check down, a scramble drill, or a rushing attempt. It's not really about how many reads Howell is making. It's about not moving off the primary design of the play. So I'll be referring to these as primary design dropbacks. In theory, sticking with the primary design of a play, even if it means taking a big hit, is fun. We all like big time throws, but Howell's insistence on sticking with the called play is hurting the commander's offense. When looking at primary design dropbacks, only Daniel Jones has a higher sack rate than Howell. And if downfield playmaking is Howell's defense here, let's compare Howell to Patrick Mahomes. Mahomes has taken a sack on just 3% of primary design dropbacks, the lowest rate in the league. This helps explain why Mahomes has dominated without a functional wide receiver core for over a year. Clearly, a part of what makes Mahomes a superstar is his ability to quickly recognize when it's time to move to plan B or C. And Howell's sack rate doesn't even tell the whole story. For one thing, Howell drops back a ton. Although Daniel Jones is taking sacks on a higher rate of his primary design dropbacks, Howell has taken 13 more such sacks in total. He's far and away the NFL leader in raw sacks on primary design dropbacks. Howell also has 12 primary design throwaways, quarterback one, five primary design batted passes, quarterback two, and six primary design interceptions, quarterback two. The overall picture is of a quarterback who is sticking with a concept past the point when the defense has caught up to the play. When Howell finally makes a decision, it's often too late to generate a positive result. With this in mind, I took a look at all sacks, interceptions, batted passes, and throwaways that PFF has charted as occurring on a single read. I weighted all of these fails equally, which is kind to Howell given his sack rate, and kind to myself since no teams are on by this week. Howell is committing a primary design fail on 17% of his plays this season. He leads the NFL by a wide margin. Then I've got a chart showing these primary design fails per play. So again, interceptions, sacks, uh, batted passes, and throwaways all weighted equally. I should definitely figure out a way to weight those um, more accurately, but kind of quick and dirty. Don't have a ton of time this week. Kind of threw it together. And um, again, like Howell is not, if the point is to look at Howell, like he's, he's taken more sacks than anyone. So this isn't skewing the point I'm making, even if it's not a perfect metric at the moment. Um, and when looking at this chart, Howell is far and away the top guy. Mahomes at the bottom. Uh, I'll kind of rattle off the names 
from best to worst real quick. Um, probably worth going to check out the chart as well, but I'll just run through it real quick. Patrick Mahomes, Jimmy Garoppolo, Kirk Cousins, Jordan Love, Dak Prescott, Geno Smith, Josh Dobbs, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Tua Tungavailoa, CJ Stroud, Mac Jones, Baker Mayfield, Trevor Lawrence, Jalen Hurts, Jared Goff, Derek Carr, uh, Deshaun Watson. We're kind of getting into danger territory here where we've now hit uh, Watson's just under a 10% rate. Again, Daniel Jones, or uh, sorry, Sam Howell leads with a 17% rate, Patrick Mahomes below five. So we're getting to guys who are now double Mahomes in this. Deshaun Watson, uh, Gardner Minshew, Kenny Pickett, Brock Purdy, Matthew Stafford, Zach Wilson, Russell Wilson, Desmond Ritter, Ryan Tannehill, Justin Fields, Bryce Young. This was the metric I was talking about in part in, in the first game preview that I said he rated poorly in. Daniel Jones and Sam Howell in last. I'd like to dig into this concept more at some point, but for now, it's safe to say that Howell's high sack rate is very much tied to the way he plays the quarterback position. It's possible that with pristine blocking, he'd be consistently hitting plays downfield, but most likely his narrowed vision is obscuring downfield opportunities that a true playmaker would be scanning for. The Eagles have already made Howell pay for his delayed release, five sacks in week four, and are highly likely to do so again. Then I've got the matchup chart showing the Eagles pass rush here really jumping out. Fifth in pass rush grade per PFF, fifth in pass rush win rate, 12th in quick pressure rate. The commander's offensive line doesn't look that bad. So if we were just thinking about that, we wouldn't say, oh, Howell's going to take a ton of sacks here. But as we know, he's holding the ball a long time. He's staring down that primary play design. Uh, It's going to lead to some sacks. Howell definitely needs to speed up his clock in the pocket, but we should also recognize that his receivers aren't helping him out much. He'd be able to get the ball out quicker if his wide receivers were getting open. Then I've got a comparison between Terry McLaurin, Jahan Dotson, and Curtis Samuel looking at open score here, and it's kind of interesting. They're all in the 27th percentile or worse. Terry McLaurin has a score of 47, Jahan Dotson 46, and Curtis Samuel 44. So none of these guys rate well in open score, which I think helps explain like why Howell is, is having trouble pulling the trigger on these throws. His guys aren't getting open. Uh, you know, that that's not on Howell. Um, hanging in there and taking the sack kind of is, but you know, he's not getting help. And first read target rate is kind of interesting. Uh, sorry, target rate overall is kind of interesting. Targets per route run because despite the fact that none of these guys are really getting open. Terry McLaurin has a big lead there. He's got a big lead in first read targets and a big lead in targets per route run, especially over Jahan Dotson. He's at 20%, Dotson at 13%, Samuel at 18%. Terry McLaurin ranks just 27th percentile in open score, and that leads Washington's primary wide receivers. This makes McLaurin's lead in first read targets very important. If he were the number four option in the passing game, McLaurin's numbers might look a lot like Jahan Dotson's. But fortunately for McLaurin's fantasy managers, Dotson is fourth in the target pecking order, not Terry. The open score data also helps explain why Logan Thomas has remained relevant. The tight end leads Washington's primary receivers in open score. Then I've got Logan Thomas's profile here. And yeah, open score in the 50th percentile. So he leads and this is the same model. They use the same model for wide receiver and tight end. So it's like a decent comparison 
He's actually not busy going against number one cornerbacks, no, but Logan Thomas actually doing okay at getting open. And he has a targets per out run of 16%. So that's what I mean when I say Dotson's actually fourth in the target pecking order. First read target of 15%. So if you just want to look at the first read target rates and say that's who the team is intending to get the ball to, uh, 18% for McLaurin, 15% for Curtis Samuel, 15% for Logan Thomas, and 12% for Jahan Dotson. However, Thomas's route participation is falling off. Then I've got his game log, and you can see 78% route participation in week one, then 47%, then 77%, 78%. So three strong weeks there, then 66% in week six, and 63% in week seven. With Thomas's playing time now in question, only McLaurin looks like a safe bet in the passing game. Curtis Samuel is probably the next best option. On the ground, the commanders could be shifting their approach. So far, the commanders have operated, along with the Chiefs and Bengals, as one of the NFL's true pass-heavy teams. Then I've got the pass rate of expected chart highlighting the commanders, and they are in that top tier, as I mentioned. But the commanders may be feeling queasy about continuing to run their offense through Howell. The commanders have been pass-first in every game this season, but went run-first on first down for the first time in Week 7. I've got the pass rate over expected by week. They were minus 6% on first down against the Giants, which is fairly conservative. Uh, They were still 3% overall. They're still a pass-heavy team, but maybe we're starting to see that crack a little bit. The commanders aren't likely to radically shift their philosophy this week, but they could be more conservative than usual for as long as this game is in contention. And it's possible that the commanders are shaking up their backfield personnel as well. Against the Giants, Chris Rodriguez saw 39% of carries severely impacting Brian Robinson's workload. Then I've got Chris Rodriguez game log. Rushing attempt share was at just 19% in week six, jumped to 39% last week. Per Ben Gretsch, this looks like a signal. Then I've got a quote from Ben. This seemed to be planned as Rodriguez got his first touch on the game's second drive, got another opportunity in the second quarter, then got three straight rushes on the first drive of the third quarter, and also got back-to-back carries on the game's final drive as Washington was pushing to try to tie the game. Those opportunities early in each half and then also late when the game was on the line are all bad news for Robinson, end quote. It makes sense that the commanders would be interested in what Rodriguez has to offer. Brian Robinson hasn't been bad as a rusher this season, but he's been thoroughly mediocre. With a limited workload possible again this week, along with the potential of being scripted out of the game, Robinson is best left on benches. Then I have Brian Robinson's profile here. And yeah, it's very mediocre. Um, Definitely like better than Antonio Gibson, but don't blame them for trying to get someone else involved and see what, what Rodriguez can bring to the table a little bit. All right, that'll do it for this free preview of the walkthrough. As you can tell, this episode was almost an hour. Um, So the narrated version, there's a lot of stuff to cover this week. Uh, Hopefully, you know, you can throw it on one and a half, two X and and get through it if you want to listen to the entire thing. Um, Or obviously you can read the entire thing over at legendaryupside.com. Hope to see you over there. Hope to see you in the discord. Hope you have a good week eight. Good luck. See you next week.